You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. We're coming to near the end of our series called What the Bible Says. This is the one of the last messages. It's an odd message, but anyone that knows me well would say I'm an odd guy, so that's okay. It's called, What Does the Bible Say About Church Membership? And you're going to have to stay tuned till the end to really get what I'm talking about, uh, because you know the Bible doesn't say much about church membership. So bear with me to the end. Don't check out. Stay with it. Now, we are going to be uh, next week, Pastor Mark's preparing a great message uh, for us, and I'm excited about that. And then after that, I was going to start the series, the f- uh, five sermons on uh, eschatology, which is the study of end times, how the, Bible, uh, the world will end as we know it, and something else new will start. But I really want to do that in person, so I'm going to wait until we come back together, hopefully in three weeks from now, um, on the 15th, I believe it would be, and I'm going to have a few other messages for you in between uh, then, or now and then. I want to just take a minute and pray. I also want you to be praying for uh, Neil Sturge's mother, who uh, this morning was um, found uh, not conscious, uh, but alive uh, in Neil's home, and so they rushed her to the hospital, and so we want to just lift up Doris uh, to you, the Lord right now. So let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we, we pray you would be with Cindy and Neil as they uh, tend to uh, Doris. Would you, Lord, fill her with your spirit? Would you heal her if uh, that is your intent for her? Lord, would you comfort them? Uh, Would you just be there, uh, that she would not be in pain, that she would not be uh, suffering, Lord, and that um, your will would be done in this situation. Lord, we pray that as we look at what you said, Jesus, I didn't say it, I didn't write these words, uh, you said them 2,000 years ago, that you'd help us to understand what exactly you're, you're talking about and how this applies to us here now. Lord, the days we live in are confusing, to say the least. They are challenging. The future uh, looks scary. But you are great, and you are with us. And with you, we can go through anything. Separated from you, oh, it's so much harder. So God, encourage us, uh, solidify us, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 14 is where we will be, and we're going to pick it up at verse 25 in a few minutes. But I just want to paint for you the scene in which uh, this is unfolding. Uh, The year is 30 AD, 
somewhere along in a rural Israel, a small town, we don't exactly know where, Jesus has just uh, healed a man on the Sabbath. He has ticked off some of the religious elite. There are Roman outposts scattered throughout the land, most likely one in between or along the village that he finds himself in. It's, it's a Saturday, most likely. It is about a year before Jesus is to be crucified. It is maybe the pinnacle of his ministry, the, the time of height. Uh, he is famous throughout the land. He is known as a man of uh, power to heal people that are sick, heal people from things that uh, no one else can heal. He is uh, known to have be a man of resources, that he can provide food for thousands of people. He is uh, famous for wisdom uh, that outclasses and mystifies the most intellectual of minds in the nation. He is known to be fearless, boldly taking on the corrupt religious factions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is known to be friend of Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. No matter the class, the race, he is willing to meet with them and minister to them. It tells us in verse 25, Now great crowds were traveling with him. Great crowds, big crowds, they're excited, they're enthused. They finally have a voice speaking out for them. The long-awaited Messiah has come to free them from Roman subservience, to set up a king, a kingdom, uh, as military might of David's kingdom and the prosperity and fame of Solomon's kingdom. Finally, after a thousand years of being a third and fourth class nation, they are rising up and everyone wants to be a part of it. And, and the, the best part of it for these people is that the common man or woman has a seat at the table of power. The, the vibe is electrical. Uh, the mood is exuberant. And, and Jesus steps forward after uh, healing this person sometime uh, out in the, the community, and he steps forward and to address the crowd. Some have been with him for over a year. Some have been with him for months. Some have just shown up in the last day or so. I can kind of picture it. There he is, everyone says. There he is. Some people shout, be quiet, be quiet. He's going to talk to us. And then Jesus, it says, turned to them and said, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Can you picture, imagine the faces of those people so excited about what was to come, what they were going to be a part of, hundreds, thousands maybe. And Jesus drops this bomb. What? Isn't it the more the merrier? Isn't it the concept bigger is better? What is this that Jesus is saying? Is this a new teaching to teach people to hate their 
parents and their spouses and their kids and their siblings? Really? This is the new teaching? Well, we know that's not the new teaching. Because Jesus said before this, the greatest commandments after loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul is to love other people as yourself and to lay down your lives for others. And and he didn't say no longer honor your mother and father as one of the commandments of Moses was, but he says do it to a greater extent. So it's not a new teaching. So what is Jesus doing then? A couple of things are happening here. Remember that Jesus is not the politically correct 21st century Canadian nervous Nelly white person. Jesus is a tough Middle Eastern first century brown man. And if you've been to the Middle East and you've talked to people, gotten to know people, been in relationships with Middle Eastern people, you know they are straight to the point. They don't cut off the rough edges. They are not politically correct. They are very vivid in their speaking. And their their conversations are full of parables and metaphors to get the point across. And he's using extreme language to inform people that Jesus must be first in their life. It's all about priorities. He has the big crowds, but the big crowds is not what he wants to be his disciples. Anyone is welcome to come and hear and be healed and receive the kingdom of God, but his disciples he is calling to have big priorities, proper priorities. When I'm doing marriage, pre-marriage counseling, I try to communicate to the the man and the woman, that uh, this is a new step in their life, that they're now, uh, God's idea is that they leave their mother and father and be united with their spouse. Now, the idea is that to that point, for most, their biggest relationship in their life has been their mother or their father, their parents. That has been after, maybe if they're a Christian, after God, their parents. But now, priorities are changing. It's now the spousal relationship that takes precedence over the parent relationship. And so it's a shifting of priorities. And and some parents have a hard time with this. They might guilt their children and say, Ah, you, you don't love me the way you used to because you don't give me the time that you used to. But it's not that you don't love them the same. It's that your priorities have shifted Jesus, in fact, attacked the Pharisees who were telling people that, you know what, if you give the temple your money, if you give us the money that you had set aside to take care of your parents, remembering there's no welfare, there's no uh, Canadian pension plan, uh, there's no ability for senior people to look after themselves because it was usually a hand-to-mouth sort of lifestyle. So the children were expected to then provide, if the parents couldn't, for uh, for their parents. But the Pharisees are saying, you know what, if you give us the money... You're, you're free and void, and you don't have to look after your parents. And Jesus is like in Mark chapter 7, verses 13 to, uh, 9 to 13, he's attacking them, saying, you're dead wrong. You're corrupting my instructions. Jesus said multiple times not to hinder, stop a little child from coming to him because in, in, in the kingdom of God, little children are precious 
to him. He, in fact, says it's better that you have a rope tied around your neck attached to a, a boulder and thrown into the ocean than to hinder one of these little children from coming to him. So it isn't that, that Jesus is saying, don't love children. When I, I talk to new parents or parents, people that are looking to have children, sometimes I'll, I'll try and say, you know, this means a priority change. Right? Maybe you had hobbies that you loved, and you could still have hobbies, but they were like after your spouse, like they were your hobbies, or your career, like you're building that career. Like, no, it's got to shift. Priorities have to shift. So it's, it's God, and, the, and then it's your, your spouse, and, and then maybe it was your parents, but now it's your child after that, and then your, your parents go down. Priorities are shifting. And Jesus is essentially bringing, raising up the reality that if you want to be my disciple— I can't be down here, four, five, six, second. I need to be first. I need to be first. And, and because some people just wanted the benefits. Some of those people in the large, large crowd, they just wanted the benefits of being in the group, but they didn't want the other part. They didn't want him to be first. And some of us in our Canadian mindsets might say, well, that's wrong. How nervy of Jesus to say, I need to be first, or he needs to be first in my life. Well, first, he is the only one worthy of being first in our lives because he's God. And we have to get that in, his, in our minds. He's worthy because he's God. He's the creator of all things, and therefore he is worthy, but but after that, it's best to have him first in your life. That's the, the hard concept for us to, to think. We often like to have ourselves as number one. But actually, 100% us isn't great. Like, we can see the effects of people putting themselves first. We can see the effects of it all around our world. But when you put Jesus first, he actually makes everything else, if you allow him better in your life. That means your marriage becomes, your, the way you relate to your spouse can become better. The way you relate to your children, you become a better uh, child to your parents. You become a better employee. You become a better friend, a better citizen when Jesus is number one in your life. He's also preparing people for the possible rejection that they will receive from the people that they love in their lives, right? He told people, and, and, and people have seen it and experienced it, that, that when you make Christ your Savior, some people are going to hate you for that. And it might be your mother. It might be your spouse. It might be your child. I was reading about a, a man in Indonesia um, on Open Doors a month back, and when he became a Christ follower, his children, because he was a senior man, and his spouse threw him out a senior man in his 60s, thrown out of his house because he was now a Christ follower. Some of you have felt this, maybe. The alienation from people you love because you have now followed Christ. And he's preparing them for that. If you want to be my disciple, guess what? Some people are going to reject you. And if, and if you just want to please everyone, then you're not going to be able to be one of my disciples. There's something else happening here. He's speaking strongly because he's doing something called thinning the herd. Thinning the herd. It's, a, it's an old shepherding 
practice, and, and we don't have roving shepherds in the 21st century, so the concept would, in Canada at least, so the concept is foreign to us. But look at it this way. In order for one or two people, and usually a, in the Middle East um, where they're, they have to constantly be roving with their herds, meaning the herds are constantly moving, and the, they're eating along the way, but they're keeping up. It's, it's actually a, quite an amazing thing. And so they might be 80, 100 sheep going single file over some very uh, risky areas in the mountains, and we, we'd come along the come up and there would be a whole herd moving through in perfect formation, one in the front and, and probably a child in the back uh, just making sure any of the stragglers are coming along. But it's an amazing thing. How do they do that? Or one person and a dog, how do they keep, you know, 50 to 100 sheep in order? Well, they have to thin the herd. They have to thin the herd of those who won't stay with the herd. Those who will go off on their own, those who will trip up the other sheep. And so Jesus is doing that. He's thinning the herd from those who would cause more harm than good. Because he only has a certain amount of time, and he only has time for those who are invested. Those who are invested because he has to leave those who will become the church, the first church. And so he doesn't have time for thousands who just want the benefits. And this wasn't the first time he did this in John chapter 6, which takes place about a year prior to this. He did it then. Um, You've heard the words, whoever wants to be my disciple must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is he saying that they become cannibals? No, he's using strong language. And it says that many left him. And he turns around to the disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? He's doing it again. Jesus wants those who desire to be faithful, hear me, who desire to be faithful, not those who are just fascinated with him. Faithfulness over fascination. Does it mean they were perfectly faithful? No, we know they weren't. They failed. But they had a desire and a willingness. And, and right, in any sort of relationship you're having, the person isn't going to be perfect. But if they have a real desire to be faithful to you in whatever that relationship is, then that's a great relationship. If you were here um, on Easter, I shared with you about Uh, Pastor Yindi, uh, the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in India, the church we've been sponsoring for the last nine months, that he gave his life. Uh, When in India, and you you guys know, there's 1.3 billion people there. It's very poor. The caste system says that the the bottom people are, are being punished by the cosmos, and that's why they are the way they are, and therefore, if they die, they die. Uh, But the ministry that Calvary does over there is they feed those vulnerable people, those starving people, um, and share the gospel with them, hundreds of them every week. And so when the government shut down because of COVID, he went out and continued to feed him and his wife and the congregation, continued to be amongst the people, feeding them, sharing the gospel, Christ's love with them, and he got COVID and he died like a warrior like a man. Did you think he didn't count the cost and know what he was doing? 
That there wasn't a point in his mind where he's like, yeah, I could very well get this, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's what my king is asking me to do. You wouldn't get that kind of response from somebody who just wanted the benefits. Think of John Bunyan. If you haven't heard of him, he's the writer of the Pilgrim's Progress. One of the most famous books for the last 400 years. A classic in Christian literature. Everyone should read it. It's a story about the walk through the Christian life. He wrote it in prison. Uh, He was put in prison for 11 years, I believe, uh, in Bedford Jail in England at a time when it was illegal to preach the gospel. Okay? He defied the government, and preached the gospel anyway. So he went to jail. And all he had to do was say he wouldn't preach the gospel anymore, but he couldn't do that. And he knew, okay, this is England, 16th century. He knew that if he goes to prison, his family, his wife, his daughter, will suffer in poverty. They wouldn't have the provision. There was no safe, social safety nets except for the church. But he couldn't stop preaching the gospel. He had to, to show his love for God above his family. And he writes this. The thought of my dear wife and my poor children suffering is as to me the pulling off of my flesh from my bones in this place. It tormented him. It tortured him. But he knew that his commitment to Christ had to stand. That is what Jesus is trying to say. If we go on, verse 28, he goes on to say, For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid a foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes out with him with 20,000. If not, while the others are still far off, he sends a delegation and asks them for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, everyone who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. More strong language. What is he meaning? That everyone should just sell everything they have and and live in loincloths and eat locusts like John the Baptist? No, he's not saying that. He's thinning the herd. He's essentially saying, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to follow me, come. The benefits will far outweigh the cost, but first you must count the cost. Doesn't anything good have a cost to it? If we think about it, in our lives, relationships, don't they have a cost? Whether it be marriage or parenting or friendship, isn't there a cost to that relationship? Something that you have to pay in order for that to be good? Think about employment. Isn't there a cost to pay? There's a benefit from being employed, but there's a cost to pay. Think about sports teams, right? If you've been ever on a, on a high-level, high-tier uh, team, 
you know that the higher level, the more competitive it is, the more cost there is to pay. Right? You, do, you don't get on the elite basketball team and say, you know what, I just want to show up to practice maybe one out of every three, and I, and I kind of don't want to play after I get sweaty. Right? They'd be like, get out of here. We only want those who are committed, or else we're not going to win. Now hear me. Jesus is not saying there's a cost to getting into heaven. It's not what he's saying. Heaven is free. The price has already been paid. The admission is waiting for you. But there is a cost to staying in the kingdom, figuratively speaking. Let me put it like this. My grandfather, who fought in World War II, bravely for the British military, fought in Africa and in Germany, fought for his nation. After few years after the war, he brought my nana and my father, who was just a baby, over from England to here because England was devastated. It was demolished. Europe was in shambles. And so they came to Canada. And now he came to Canada to enjoy the benefits of Canada, a free nation, a nation that hadn't been ravaged by war, where there was so much opportunity to a better life for his family. But he, like so many, had to renounce, in a sense, their old nation. They didn't just get to come, enjoy the benefits, and then live as if they were still in that nation, right? Live by the laws or do whatever they wanted. No, they came and they lived by the new laws to benefit the new country that they were in. And there was a renouncing, if you, if you put it, of, of the old life that he had in Britain, doesn't mean some of his mannerisms and the English things that they did weren't still there, but Canada was his country now. And in the same way, Christ is saying, I'm your new. I'm your new. And what kind of a country would we be? Like, I believe in a Canada where anyone can come. It doesn't matter from any country, any race. But when they come, we want them to live according to our laws, right? And look to benefit the society, right? Or what do we become if everyone is just doing whatever they want to do? We're no longer a good place to be. And, and Jesus is kind of saying the same thing. Listen, come, be one of my disciples, but I'm running the show. I'm the king. And there's a cost. And he gives one more example. Verse 34. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Salt is something we take for granted. It's in all of our food. We don't even really think of it except when we want some salt on our fries or something like that. But in other countries, it's actually something that people have killed for. If you've ever seen an animal, they'll go bananas to get salt, right? Because salt is actually essential for us. It preserves. So in countries where there is no freezers, it's the only way to really preserve food. It adds taste to bland meats. That's why it's precious in other countries. It cleans wounds. But here's the most important part of salt. You need it to live. It is essential for life. The cells 
inside of our bodies need ions which come from salt. In order to electrically send its signals properly, we have to intake salt. And if we don't take, in, take salt, we become lethargic and we eventually die. And what Jesus is saying is, saltiness is only salt if it has the salt in it. Take the salt away from the, the saltiness away from the salt, and what you're left with is not even fit for the manure pile. But really what he's saying is, listen, the, what makes the Christian the Christian is me. Take the desire, take me being f- not filling that person out of the Christian, and you're not left with anything that can really be used for the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted those who desired to be faithful, who were invested in what he thought was important, who actually wanted to be filled by him. And so I started out the sermon saying it was about church membership, what the Bible has to say about church membership. Not a topic people talk about very often. And so we come back to it. What does the Bible say about church membership? Nothing. Nothing. Because they didn't have church membership. All they had was a Christian. And then a Christian meant something. It meant there was a cost. And for 2,000 years, from the book of Acts, throughout many countries and in most of the world now today, to be a Christian isn't just something you say. It isn't something you tick off on a census box like in Canada where you don't really even understand what it means. Yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? I don't know. It means a follower of Christ. In China, if you identify as a Christian, it means you might be arrested or harassed by the police. In Nigeria, it, might means you, it means you might be kidnapped like those girls were seven years ago. In Malaysia, it means your house might get burned down like a bunch of believers did about a month ago. In India, it might mean you're forced into marriage or raped and so on and so forth. Right? There's a cost. And when we have this thing called church membership, really what we're saying is you're kind of distinguishing yourself you're as an all-inner. It's not like you're better. Hear me. You're not better. And, and members are all equal. Like, I'm a member, but it doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else. But this is what you're saying. I'm all in with this local body, this group of believers. I'm all in. If there's challenges... I'm all in. If there's hardships, I'm not just going to bail. I want to actually do ministry with this group of people to this community. I want to be held accountable, and I want to hold each other accountable. I want to encourage you in the hard times, and I don't want to give up. I want to worship the King. There was a song we sang, the second song, the Christ is the Lord, the Lord. That's what you're saying. He's the Lord. I'm not just in this two days a week, I mean the seven days a week, pursuing Christ. That is what we could say as Jesus was saying, whoever wants to be my disciple, what we could say church membership is. To simply put, a member of Calvary is somebody who wants to be faithful, who desires to be faithful. 
who wants to be filled with Jesus Christ seven days a week. Jesus knew he was thinning out the disciples. And by preaching this, I know that I might be thinning out the church membership. Maybe there's some people listening here or listening at home that say, oh, I'm a member, but I'm really not all in. That's okay. You can turn in your membership and know that you can still come and be a part and, and, and hear and, and, and know people and be accepted in. Maybe there's some people listening, they're like, I'm not a member, but I'm all in. We would love for you to join us. A member means you are a controlling person. You are part of the people steering the church. And I say all that because I think we can all look upon the horizon and see that being a follower of Christ in Canada is going to get a lot harder quite soon. And we need the people who are the members to be all in. As we, trans- as we uh, move into communion, I just want you to think about, you know, that's hard. That's hard teaching. It's hard teaching that Jesus is giving us. But imagine now that last supper, that last couple of days, when, you, when the disciples looked around, they'd had rocks thrown at them. They'd been rejected. They'd been thrown out of villages. They'd seen miracles. They'd done so many things. They were part of Jesus' famous disciples. Think about what it would have been to look around in that room. Or that, that, that day after uh, Jesus had asc- ascended to heaven and they're in the upper room. Imagine to look around and say, she's with me. I can depend on him. She's with me till the end. Like, wouldn't that have been such an amazing feeling? Isn't that what everybody wants? A group of people that they can depend on? That is, in essence, what we're doing when we take communion. We're reaffirming our allegiance to Christ. Lord, above all others, above our own desires, above our relationships, above the authorities of this world. And so I invite you to participate in this act of Worship this act of recommitment. Just tear the top part off the wafer. And I'll read to you the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul is passing down what had been passed down to him. As we are keeping this tradition of remembering Christ until the day he comes back. He's coming back. He's coming back for his church, for us. He has not abandoned us. And he says, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim it. Let's remember it. Let's reaffirm ourselves to him. Pray before we go. Lord God, Jesus Christ, your words are strong. They are not for the faint-hearted. They are not for the trivial. But they are for any man or woman who desires to be part of something that will live into eternity. Lord, in the days we live in, it's scary. It's discouraging. I pray you would encourage us as we go into this yet another lockdown. As we are separated from each other yet again. As the world looks to humans for the answer, we would look to you. You said, in this world, we will have troubles. But do not lose heart. You have overcome the world. I pray we would remember that. And we would encourage each other through these coming weeks and months and years. Until, and maybe we are the generation that will see you come again. Until you come or we go to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, go and have a great day and be an encouragement. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.